Welcome to World Policy on Air, a weekly podcast from the pages and website of World Policy Journal, published by the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. I'm David Alpern. But first, this week's winners and losers report from Ian Bremer, president of Eurasia Group Global Risk Consultants. Winners and losers, it's the Trump Family Foreign Policy Edition. Donald Trump, winner, Syria and China. First things that the media has actually said he's done well on foreign policy. Eric Trump, loser. He's actually saying that uh, the Syria strike shows that his dad is in cahoots with Putin. Uh, Eric just can't get it right. Ivanka Trump, winner. Uh, she's the one, of course, that was heartbroken broken by the children, got him to do the Syria uh, strikes. Jared, winner. Uh, you know, if it's him versus Bannon, who's going to win? All in the family, my friends. listening to World Policy on Air. Now this. I think really the basic teaching is for me is American women are American women. They may be Jewish, they may be Christian, they may be Muslim, but their their heritage is uh, a society which believes in justice for all. And they pursue that. Whether Whatever religion they are, that's what the American heritage is. Noted Egyptian board Harvard Divinity School professor Leila Ahmed received a 2013 University of Louisville Award in Religion for writing A Quiet Revolution, which explained increased wearing of the Islamic veil in America. Speaking about it then, she had a basically positive view of that development, as well as of the prospects for Muslim American women who freely chose it. More recently, being a Western Muslim has not seemed so promising, Given Donald Trump's fear-mongering campaign rhetoric and court-suspended Muslim bans, as well as opinion polls suggesting support for similar legislation in many European countries. Also a reported spike in violent hate crimes against women wearing the hijab and men even suspected of being Muslim, notably Indians and particularly turban-wearing Sikhs. World Policy Journal discussed the situation with Dr. Ahmed for a recent Talking Policy blog post and she revisited the issue with me for this podcast. Professor Ahmed, welcome to World Policy on Air. Thank you so much for having me. What would you say is the biggest misconception the Western world has about women in Islam? That's not as simple a question as one might think. There's been a huge change in my own lifetime in how people in America see Islam and think about women in Islam. Back, Back in the early 80s, when I began working on this field, Feminist activists and American feminist activists of all religions, uh, Christian as well and Jewish in, in particular, um, were high, very intellectually creative and very active in uh, examining the patri- patriarchy and women's oppression in all societies and all religions. It wasn't nobody thought it was exclusively Islam that oppressed women. This was the height of the feminist era in America, and. Uh, understanding sexism and oppression across religion was the norm. So today's notion that Islam alone uniquely oppresses women wasn't at all a commonplace notion then. But it's the dominant one today. And although even back then, you know, of course it was true uh, that Islam was kind of implicitly the worst, uh, because, uh, because in fact the prejudice against Islam has been an ingrained part of Western society for many centuries now. So that, it was there implicitly, but not among the intellectuals and the media and academics as it is today. It was just a, a marginal possible idea. 
So, but today it's become the master narrative of Islam that it oppresses women uniquely, and that's a complete fabrication. I think um, back then we thought all religion, in particular the monotheistic religions, Judaism and Christianity, as well as Islam, oppressed women in very similar ways. That idea has simply disappeared from the public discourse. So. Uh, I, the, things began to change, I think it was around the 1990s, particularly as, as with, during the first Gulf War and the war in Iraq, with Iraq, that the, the narrative of Islam's unique oppression of women began to gain dominance. Uh, and then it was, it was in relation to politics. The headscarves many Muslim women wear, be it hijab, niqab, or burqa, are often the source of debate in many Western societies because they're assumed to be inherently anti-feminist or misogynistic. What are the origins of the veil, and how did it become such a political issue? Well, nobody knows the real origins. We do know that early Christianity practiced wearing hijab. Think of all the images of the Virgin Mary uh, who we see everywhere, who, who does, in fact, wear what we would call a hijab today on her head. Uh, and this was this kind of dress of a head covering of some kind of hijab was the norm throughout the Middle East, whether you were Jewish, Christian, or Muslim. Judaism is much older than Islam, and so is Christianity. So the hijab was com common in all those societies before it became common in Islam. Uh, it, it was just an ordinary, old-style way of dress. It's like uh, the way we wear jeans today. We, we associate it with, with a certain... Uh either self-proclaimed or enforced modesty. Uh, did that, was that never, was that not part of it at the outset? Of course, it was always about modesty and about class also. It was often women of the upper classes who wore it. But I mean, there were, so, but, but there are many speculations as to why the hijab was there. And, uh, but modesty was always for all of these, all three monotheistic religions, part of the, part of the, uh, uh, meaning of it, but but the, then the question is: So why did it come back? Uh, because by the time when I was growing up in Egypt, hardly anybody wore hijab. Certainly not any of the cities. The major cities were it was 99 percent people did not wear it. So what happened? And that's another very complicated question. Uh, and again, it relates to the issue of the, of the political notion of Islam's unique oppression of women. It, for instance, and, and why it, became, it has become now, as you ask, uh, why has it become a political issue? So it, it's again very re related to the, whatever pol political moment we're in. For instance, it was very clear to many of us who study women in Islam that sometime immediately after 9-11, the hijab in America became a sign of Muslim women's oppressions. Images of it conveying that message became widespread everywhere, newspapers, all the media. And Laura Bush and Claire, uh, uh, Sherry Blair, as we went to war in Afghanistan and then in Iraq, made a statement about it when we were first in, the, in relation to the war in Afghanistan, not about the hijab in particular, but about liberating women from the oppression of Islam. They said we were going to fight the war in Afghanistan in order to liberate women, which obviously wasn't the case. Uh, this was clearly a politically useful fabrication. We were not in either Afghanistan or Iraq to liberate women. So the idea was, it, so it was serving a political purpose and, and promoting the idea that Islam uniquely oppressed women when we had to save them from that. And this unfortunately became one of the key themes of the 
taken up by the Islamophobia industry, which uh, uh, took on, uh, became very active after 9-11. Almost exactly 100 years ago, the, the veil was used in exactly the same way as it was used during the war in Afghanistan by the British imperialists. For example, uh, 100 years ago, when Egyptians wanted independence from the British, the British ruler, a man called Lord Cromer, said that Britain couldn't give Egyptians independence until they began to become civilized like the British. And the sign of becoming civilized would be for women to throw off the veil. What's important to know about Lord Cromer is that he claimed to want the liberation of women in Egypt as a sign of Egypt becoming civilized while at the same time in England he was president of the society opposing women's suffrage. So he was a strong anti-feminist in England, but promoted himself as a so-called feminist in Egypt. So this too is another political ruse uh, used to justify empire and imperial rule. The British in effect were saying we can't give you independence because you're too backward and too uncivilized. We have to continue to rule you on the sign of your being uncivilized is, is, uh, and and uh, if you are to become civilized, you have to let your women throw off their veils. So in a way, we are witnessing history repeat itself today. Again, the veil is used to justify imperial power, war, and domination. This combination of being anti-feminist at home and apparently feminist abroad applies to many people in America, often in particular conservatives. I don't believe, for example, that President George W. Bush was known for being particularly strong supporter of women's rights in America. Many Muslim women uh, in America feel excluded from Western feminism, uh, and they're not the only minority demographic that feels unwelcome. How can Western feminists be more inclusive and supportive for all women, in, including Muslims? Yes, I think feminism is actually in the process right now of becoming um, transformed into being more in inclusive, at least among the, the younger generations of both women and men. When I uh, went to the Women's March uh, here in Boston, partly to observe and understand what was happening, and I noticed that many of the science participants were holding up supported Muslims, and particularly Muslim women and African Americans, and they also uh, targeted uh, ecological issues. I think young people today understand that all of these are deeply interconnected, racism, sexism, a sense that we have the right to do whatever we like to the earth, all of these grounded in a delusion of mastery and superiority and, and the right to dominate. And I think the new generation of feminists are aware of this and are struggling on all, understand that all of these are unconnected and need to work, be worked on together. Let's continue on that. You grew up in Egypt and moved to the West as an adult. What unique struggles are you observing uh, that face people who are the first generation born in a Western country from a Muslim or uh, otherwise Middle East families? For one thing, I think Islamophobia is very much worse now than it was when I was young. So that's a huge obstacle. Um, I think we find ourselves today in a society in which even intelligent people are, appear to be brainwashed by the anti-Muslim nonsense which is happily circulating in the society and being amplified by the media. Uh, so that, that's the major difference, I think. But on the, also, on the other hand, members of this generation who are living in the West are themselves Americans or Europeans. They're born here, as you said. So they think like Americans in a way that some of us who came from abroad don't. 
if I look around now the number of women who are visibly Muslim or who have a Muslim background, there's a huge variety now in the West. And there's many different kinds of voices. So I actually think it's a much more hopeful time, although Islamophobia has, has to be defeated and is a major obstacle. And one of the great frustrations of Islamophobia for people like myself who got into this field because I believed in the importance of working to promote the equality of women in Islam as in every, everywhere else is that it, it, uh, it, has made, it, it has used women so much as a weapon of, of racism that it makes us reluctant to speak about but the reforms that really certainly do need uh, Islam, like everything else, and any other society needs reforms in relation to women and gender. But um, it, it, we become reluctant to address that side of it because it feeds into a, what is a very dangerous and deadly racism. What's your perspective on reports that uh, about Islamic State recruiting? supposedly targeting this demographic of Western-born Muslims uh, often believed to be especially vulnerable if they feel excluded by their, uh, their home countries. Yeah, I think ISIS is just a horrendous new development in history. Uh, and I also think it's very tragic that young people uh, find themselves in a position of feeling that they don't belong in the society in which they were born and which they're growing up. So that's a, a terribly painful reality. Um, I also think that Muslims need to connect to other minorities, Hispanics, African-Americans, Jews, people who have uh, in many ways have experienced varieties of oppressions, all of them rooted in racist practices. So I think it's important uh, you know, racism is racism, and I think it's very important that we understand the similarities and in connection, interconnections, and that we develop coalitions uh, of people who suffer from, these, uh, from this. And there are some on both sides of the religious line who believe that Islamic or Middle Eastern values are at odds with Western values and that they simply can't coexist in the same society. How do you respond to that? Well... It depends on what, what Western values means. I actually believe that there are some extremely important Western values that we should passionately seek to preserve and hold on to. But these days, the West itself often doesn't seem to know what, the West, what, the, what Western values are. And I, and I also believe that the basic, wonderful, core human values, qualities and values uh, are and have been historically present in every society, including the Islamic world, as elsewhere, as well as in the West. But history has muddied the story. I don't think there's anything intrinsic to Islam that makes it incompatible with the good things in the West, and vice versa. There are some bad things in the West, too, like racism. Who wants that? What are Western values? You mentioned how there are many different kinds of Muslim voices today in the West, but they're often silenced by extremists on both ends. What can be done to empower moderate voices and make sure that they're heard? I think uh, the voices, you're right, are deliberately excluded. And we obviously have to fight Islamophobia in the media uh, and the media that amplifies it. How to do that, I'm not sure. Although the reality is, as I, as I observe co contemporary scene. Uh, is that actually Muslim, Muslims and Muslim women are stepping up to the plate. The new generation is taking up uh, the, the burden of responding and, and 
uh, talking back to the ug ugliness of racism and Islamophobia, and they're joined by people from of other of the of different races and different uh, what we call races. They're joined by white people who are also objecting to this, so and African Americans and Hispanics. So there are coalitions beginning to emerge. And uh, I do think there's a, clearly a much greater visibility if you just follow the news today of Muslims in public life and in uh, media, that I think there are important changes already afoot. We'd be remiss if we didn't ask specifically about your reaction to the rhetoric and official actions of President Trump, uh, how you see fellow Muslim Americans reacting, and what advice you have for them about getting through this painful period for them and, and so many Americans of all faiths and creeds. When you began, you know, the very, by mentioning you know, women in hijab were being attacked, uh, that, that Sikhs were attacked, people who even looked like Muslims were being attacked. And this is happening even at kindergarten level. You know, kids are being uh, told to go home or to, they're called ragheads or they're, you know, it's, 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 so it, it, the damage it's causing at, at a very basic level. How will these kids grow up, you know? So it's for our own society. We need to figure out how not to, not to promote these ugly, ugly attitudes. I think the dangers for all of us are huge and the costs for these young people who are perfectly good young people being stigmatized is really just horrendous. Uh, it's interesting that the uh, that the legal system, or I should say the judicial system in the United States, uh, first blocked uh, President Trump's uh, Muslim bans, which of course he denies uh, have that purpose, but uh, judges have uh, seen behind his claims, and more recently have uh, at least... Uh, continued a lawsuit against him for provoking violence as a candidate at his rallies. So yeah, perhaps we, there is hope in the, in the judicial system to, to, to put a, uh, a, uh, a, big, uh, a big black mark over that kind of behavior. Yes, I think, well, it's exact. You know, when I said earlier that I think there are important things that value, Western values are worth preserving and worth fighting for. And I think this is the, what happened with the judicial system as really is an example of what's amazingly wonderful and to be grateful for about the West. Professor Ahmed, thank you. Thank you, David. Egyptian-born Dr. Leila Ahmed is the first appointed professor of women's studies in religion at Harvard Divinity School. Her books include Women and Gender in Islam and A Quiet Revolution, The Veil's Resurgence from the Middle East to America. She discussed her recent talking policy feature on the World Policy blog on being Muslim in America. Featured in the new WPJ Spring issue, cover line Fascism Rising, you'll find articles on Donald Trump's savage capitalism, on the battle to control Ukraine's future through its past, and on how the left can right itself, plus the retro-macho politics of Brazil, and the infrastructure of counterinsurgency. World Policy on Air is a production of World Policy Journal at the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. Editor Christopher Shea, online news editor Laurel Jerombeck, podcast producer Anna Grace Carter. I'm David Alpern.